Well, let's pray together tonight one more time. Let's ask God to speak to us through the teaching of the Word of God tonight. Father, tonight we yield ourselves to the ministry of the Word of God. And Lord, I pray even as, as a flawed vessel, you would use me for your glory to share eternal truths that will impact our lives forever. In Jesus' name, everybody said, Amen. Amen. Everybody get a handout? Awesome. If you need one, Ray, just kind of watch if somebody else comes in. Turn to the book of Philippians. Last week we introduced this book uh, and we just kind of laid the foundation. We talked about the theme of the book. Uh, and what is the theme? It's uh, Anybody want to share it with me? Joy, the epistle of joy. Philippians is the epistle of joy. Now the interesting aspect of that is that Paul wrote this book while he was in prison in Roman uh, captivity, if you will, uh, in, in the Roman, uh, under Roman uh, guard, some at, at even times uh, chained to another Roman guard uh, in his life. And so for this to be an epistle of joy is an interesting insight that I think all of us, if we'll just reach out and begin to appropriate this book into our life in greater measure, we can begin to experience new levels of what I call biblical joy. You know, a lot of us find uh, joy in, in, in the things of life. Hey, I, I get joy out of my grandkids. And in some ways, I think that's a biblical joy. Amen. Because it's, it's the gift of God in my life. But sometimes we're looking for joy and for happiness, really, and in relationships or in, in resources or finances or things. And how many of you know that that's really kind of, shallow in in the in when when we get right down to it because have you ever thought if I could just get this if I could just obtain that if I could just go here if I could just go there if I could just accomplish this then man I'd be set and you get there and you realize man it's not what I thought it was going to be uh, even in relationships you know I see Daniel he still has his arm around his lovely bride there but uh you know, sometimes there's a misconception about marriage. You think, man, when I get married, it's going to, you know, rockets are taking off and explosions. And then you realize you're married to somebody who has bad breath every morning. You realize, man, it's different uh, than what I thought. And we realize that the, the, the temporal things of life may or may not bring us uh, the real depth of joy that the Word of God and God can bring in our life. So that's the theme of the book. So we're going to read the first chapter and just go through it. And, and the way I'm going to go, I'm not going to go verse by verse, but we're going to hit all aspects of this chapter from different angles in just a few moments. But I'm going to read it to you, uh, and, and then we'll just jump into the middle of what I want to say tonight about, uh, about the book of Philippians. Here we go. Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Jesus Christ, to the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi with the bishops and deacons. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God upon every remembrance of you always in every place of mine, making requests for you with all joy. There it is. For your, for your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now. Being confident of this very thing that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. Just as it is right for me to think this of you all, because I have you in my heart, inasmuch as both in my chains and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, you are partakers with me of grace. 
For God is my witness how greatly I long for you with all the affection of Jesus Christ. And this I pray that your love may abound still more and more in all knowledge and all discernment. And that you may approve the things that are excellent and that you may be sincere and without offense till the day of Jesus Christ. Being filled with the fruits of righteousness which are by Jesus Christ to the glory and the praise of God. But I want you to know, brethren, that the things which happened to me have actually turned out for the furtherance of the gospel, so that it has become evident to the whole palace guard and to all the rest that my chains are in Christ. Now there's the reference that I spoke to you of him being in prison in Rome. And most of the brethren in the Lord have become confident by my chains, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ even from envy and strife, and some also from goodwill. The former preach Christ from selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing to add affliction to my chains, but the latter out of love, knowing that I am appointed for the defense of the gospel. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is preached. And in this I rejoice. Yes, I will rejoice. There's that theme of joy. For I know that this will turn out for my deliverance through your prayer and the supply of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. According to my earnest expectation and hope that in nothing I shall be ashamed. Now, it's hard for me not to comment here. I'm just wanting to read through. I'll stop. I'll just keep reading. I wanted to start commenting. For I know that this will turn out for my deliverance through your prayer and the supply of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. According to my earnest expectation and hope that in nothing I shall be ashamed, but with all boldness as always. So now also Christ may be magnified in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. You've probably heard that before. But if I live on in the flesh, this will mean fruit from my labor. Yet what shall I choose? I cannot tell. For I'm hard pressed between the two. Having a desire to depart, be with Christ, which is far better. Nevertheless, to remain in the flesh is more needful for you. I, I, and being confident of this, I know that I shall remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy of faith. There's that joy again. That you're rejoicing. There's that joy again. For me may be more abundant in Jesus Christ by my coming to you again. Only let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ so that whether I come and see you or I am absent, I may... I may hear of your affairs that you stand fast in one spirit with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel and not in any way terrified by your adversaries, which is to them a proof of perdition, but to you of salvation and that from God. For to you it has been granted on behalf of Christ not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake, having the same conflict which you saw in me and now here is in me. And everybody said... Amen. So there's the first chapter of the book of Philippians, and I'm going to hit it from different angles tonight. But you've got your notes. I just want to kind of lay a little more foundation. And then I'm going to give you some, some, I think, some really insight on on how you and I can experience new levels of biblical joy in our life. The primary purpose of the letter, why Paul wrote this letter in the first place, was twofold. The first one is this. He's writing to thank them or thanksgiving for their liberal yet sacrificial gift. He's writing to let them know how much he appreciates the sacrifice of their giving to him in his time of need. Now, I want to lay this foundation. I want you to see this, and I want you to understand. We, we, we mentioned it uh, uh, last week, but I want you to turn over to 2 Corinthians chapter 8 because it's a reference of this gift that Paul received from the church in Philippi. 2 Corinthians chapter 8. Now, 
What's Paul doing here in 2 Corinthians chapter 8? He's using the church at Philippi as an illustration of the grace of giving in their life. How many of you know giving out of our, our abundance uh, is really uh, not what God's uh, impressed with? In fact, you remember what did, Je- what did Jesus say about the woman who gave the two, the two coins or the two mites? She's given more than everybody else because they gave out of their abundance. She gave all she had. And so Paul is using this church in Philippi as an illustration to the church in Corinth about how to excel in the grace of giving. Everyone say the grace of giving. And so he's writing the letter to Philippi, or the church in Philippi, is a thank you letter, if you will, for their giving. And here it is, chapter 8, verse 1. Moreover, brethren, we make known to you the grace of God bestowed on the churches of Macedonia. Now, that's a reference to Philippi, because that's where they were. That in a great trial of affliction, the abundance of their joy and their deep poverty abounded in the riches of their liberality. Now, did you see all that wrapped up in there? Man, there's joy. In the middle of their great trial of affliction, the abundance of their joy and their deep poverty abounded into the riches of their liberality. For I bear witness that according to their ability, yes, and beyond their ability, they were freely willing, imploring us with much urgency that we should receive the gift and the fellowship of the ministering to the saints. And so he's using this, this church as a prime example. And so... The Philippians were just sacrificial. They, uh, they gave sacrificially. They, began, they gave beyond their capacity. Now, go back to Philippians and let me show you uh, how, what Paul says, even though uh, this is later in the book, I just want you to see the purpose of the letter. Uh, Philippians chapter 4. Oh, let's go down to um, verse 14 of chapter 4. He said, I can do, all, 13 says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And he goes on to say, nevertheless, you have done well that you shared in my distress. Now you Philippians know also that in the beginning of the gospel, when I departed from Macedonia, no church shared with me concerning giving and receiving, but you only. You see, he, he was blessed by this church. And he goes on to say, for even in Thessalonica, you sent aid once and again for my necessities. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that abounds to your account. How many of you know Paul understood the principle of sowing and reaping? Okay, he said, I seek the fruit that, that, that abounds to your account. Indeed, I have all in abound. I am full, having received from Epaphroditus the, the things sent from, uh, from you. Now, Epaphroditus was the guy who brought him the offering. And it references him in chapter 2. We'll look at it later. But he's, he's writing this letter. And, I, and from what I understand, he gives this, this thank you letter to Epaphroditus who's going back to Philippi after he brought this blessing to him. Uh, that's my understanding. He said, I received from Epaphroditus the things sent from you, a sweet-smelling aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to who? To God. And I love verse 9. Now, here's the... People quote verse 19, but you got to understand from whence this this verse was birthed, from a sacrificial liberal gift. How many of you know what a sacrificial gift is? It's not out of your abundance, but it's out of your need. You give, as it said in 2 Corinthians 8, that's what this church in Philippi did. Uh, And so look what he says, and my God shall supply, 
not might supply, shall supply all your need. And, and what's the benchmark? According to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus. Somebody say amen. amen. In other words, when you learn from the church in Philippi that, hey, a sacrificial liberal gift given out of a compassion and care for whoever, whether it's people who've lost their home or, or a missionary who needs a water well or whatever it is, God loves that kind of giver. In fact, if we had time, we could go back and build this principle. I don't have time, but you just need to understand from this thank you letter that God will bless you when you bless him, not only with your words, but with your finances. And so uh, the purpose of the letter was thanksgiving for their liberal yet sacrificial gift. And then number two, and we'll look at this more later, it was an encouragement to them to be unified or an encouragement in unity for the body of Christ. And so there was some issues issues with disunity, and you can see the scriptures there, uh, Philippians 1, 27, uh, 2, 1 through 4, and 14, and then 4, 2, and 3. He hits this theme. Now, one thing is interesting about this church. I want to throw it out to you. There's no correction involved in this church. Now, you read, you read Galatians. Man, he's, oh, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? How I many of you know, that's stout stuff, uh, you know? And then Corinthians, they're all mixed up with the gifts, and, and they're all messed up. He's having to correct them. The letter to Philippi, there's, no, there's encouragements and, and, and even challenging words, but there's no, you better quit that. I'm going to come and put the wapitas on you. There's no correction there. It's all encouragement. And even when this church is struggling with some disunity issues, he encourages them rather than comes with a harsh word or a strong word of correction. He just loves this church. He's speaking kindly to these people. He loves these folks. They took good care of him in his time of need. And so he encourages them to stay strong in the unity of the faith. In fact, just verse 27 of chapter 1. We'll, we'll read that one and then we'll move on. Only let your conduct be worthy of the gospel so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of your affairs. And I catch the theme that you stand fast in one spirit with one mind striving together for the faith of the gospel. And then we see that throughout the book, you know, chapter 2, uh, the first four verses. Uh, let this mind be in you, uh, you know, do nothing from selfish ambition, you know, and, 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 and look out at the interests of others. He's talking about being uni unified together. And, and, and then, gosh, uh, oh, verse 14 of chapter 2, do all things without complaining and disputing. And, and then he gets down to chapter 4. And verse 2 and 3, and he says, I implore Euodia and I implore Syntyche, uh, if that's how you say their name, to be of the same mind in the Lord. And I urge you also, true companion, help these women who labored with me in the gospel with Clement also. In other words, uh, there was some problem with the women in the church. They were disunified. And he's, he's, he said, hey, uh, I implore you. Hey, get together on this thing. Be of the same mind in the spirit concerning the things of the gospel. So that's the primary two purposes for the writing of the book. Uh, now, the, as we talked about, the theme is joy. So let's jump in there. I want to get back to that. The foundation of biblical joy. 
And this is something that if you've been around me very long, you're going you're gonna to understand exactly what I'm saying. But let me just jump into the middle of it. Here it is. Biblical joy is built upon the revelation of our eternally fixed position. Everyone say fixed position. As saints of God. Let's read this out loud together. You can do it through your notes or up on the screen. Here we go. Biblical joy is built upon the revelation of our eternally fixed position as saints of God. What are you talking about? Well, Philippians chapter 1, verse 1 and 2, if you look at it, what does he say in reference to the saints of God? He says this, to all the, really verse 1, to all the saints, let me stop there. How many of you know a saint is not somebody with a crown on their head, it's a believer, a born-again believer? Uh, if you're from the background of the Catholic Church, you know, they have sainthood and whatnot. Well, we're not in the Catholic Church, and all, all God's people are saints, somebody. All the saints said Amen. So you're saints of God. To all the saints, now here it is, the biggest little word in the New Testament, in Christ Jesus. Everyone say in. Now, if you hang around me at all, you, you've got to get this word down in your spirit. Because this little word, saints in Christ, this phrase, in Christ, in means fixed position. You get it? Established, fixed in Christ. And I've done a, I did a series this, this year called The Family Fix. And I, I, I preached out of the dictionary four different definitions of the word fix. And I, and kind of the premise is, if you'll get fixed, you'll get fixed. How many of you, there's some things in your life that needs to be fixed? Well, if you'll get fixed in Christ, those things begin to get fixed. And when you understand who you are, somebody say, in Christ. That's our new position in Christ. When you're born again, uh, you, you are fixed in a fixed position. When you're born again in the family of God through faith in the finished work of Christ at Calvary, we are fixed in Christ. Everyone say, in Christ. That's my new position. How many of you realize that? Amen? And we're going to talk about that tonight in, in great detail in reference to chapter 1 and the context of joy. So let me show it to you in a couple of more places. Look in Philippians 3.1 and how it references the being in Christ, in the Lord. Look at chapter 3, verse 1. Finally, my brethren, rejoice, what? In the Lord. In a, you see the correlation between rejoicing and being fixed in the Lord? You get in the Lord... And then you can begin to rejoice. When you realize, hey, I'm fixed, established in Him. That's my new position. I'm going to build it a little stronger here. But look in Philippians 4, 4, kind of the well-known verse. Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. How do we rejoice? In the Lord. Slap it up there for me, Ike. Philippians 4, 4. Rejoice in the Lord. That's our fixed position. Now, go back to that the top part there. Let's read it out loud again. Biblical joy is built upon the revelation of, of our eternally fixed position as saints of God. Somebody say eternally fixed. Now, let me show it to you in a number of places. Can I, can I, can I hammer this home with you for just a few moments? John 15, go over there. Jesus Taught this principle concerning abiding in the vine. In fact, chapter one, chapter 15, verse 1 through 11, 
man. It's all about abiding in Christ. Now, the word abide means to stay to uh, in a given place, continue, dwell, remain, and tarry. He said it, uh, gosh, I wish I had time to read all of this. Verse 4, abide where, how do we abide? There's that word. In, fixed position. I live, remain, I dwell, fixed in Christ. Amen? I happen to believe once you're born again, you are irrevocably grafted into the vine and you are fixed in Christ. Now, if you want to lose your salvation, you have to go somewhere else because I'm not going to let you. Amen? You say, well, what about if you backslide. Well, I think well, most backsliders never really front slid. That's just my personal opinion because when you come in contact with the Lord of glory and he changes your life from the inside out and you experience his mercy and grace upon you, yeah, we're going to make mistakes. But hey, when you are born again, you're fixed in him. And when you begin to get the revelation of that, of where you really stand with God, all your temporary circumstances seem to lose their influence over your life. Look in, well, you don't have to turn there. Acts 17, 21 just says this. In Him we live and move and have our being. We used to sing that, in Him we live. Hey, but catch it. Where do we live and move and have our being? Where is the source? When we are fixed in Him. Everyone say, in Christ. That's our position. You got to get it. That's, that's where we are with Christ. We're fixed. We're established eternally with Him. And He goes on. Oh gosh, I got to go to Ephesians chapter 2. R- turn over there quick. I'm laying a foundation, then we'll get back to Philippians. Because you got to get this down. Because Paul the Apostle, all throughout his epistles, he hammers home this revelation of being fixed in Christ. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1 through 10. Uh, I'll just read as much as I. I I'd like to read it all, but catch this. It's going to reveal our position before and after we're born again, okay? You can fill that out if you like. That when we read through the Scripture, it's going to reveal our position before and after being born again. And you he made alive who were dead in your trespasses and sin, in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, uh, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lust of the flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just as others. That's where we were. That was our position before Christ. You get it? Everybody go yucky poo. And that's a bad place to be, is it not? But verse 4. But God, who is rich in mercy. Ooh, I love this. Because of his great love with which he loved us. Even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. For by grace you have been saved and raised us up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places where? In Christ Jesus. That's where we're fixed now. Everybody say amen. amen. So all throughout the New Testament, from Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John all the way through, when you catch the revelation of your new position as a child of God, that I'm fixed, I'm established in Him, it will change the way you live life on planet Earth. 
Are you with me? So, with that in mind, I want to give you two principles of our new position from Philippians chapter 1. So, therefore, I laid a foundation, two principles uh, about our new position. And here's the first one. Now, catch this. Our eternal position, that's what I just described to you, should always, I should say, affect our temporal condition. You see, hey, Daniel, who was it said I just dropped in to see what condition my condition was in? I, I just thought of that, but uh, that's the way a lot of people are. I, uh, yeah, I just dropped in to see what's going on with my condition. But catch this, our eternal position, I just explained to you, we're fixed eternally with Christ, in Christ. We're, in fact, we're seated with Christ in heavenly places. We're not down in the whole basement digging holes. We're seated with Christ in heavenly places. Now, Paul is talking about this rejoicing in the Lord while he's in prison. He'd been in Roman custody for four years. And then he writes this epistle of joy. Our eternal position should, should always affect our temporal condition. Now, Paul's unfortunate condition of being in prison. You know, how many of you realize for most of us that, that'd be a game stopper? Well, hallelujah. Think about John on the Isle called Patmos. There's not anybody there. He's all alone. But he writes Revelation. Oh. Even in his bad condition, his eternal position has the power over our temporal condition. Are you getting it? How many of you would like to change some of the conditions of your life? You do so by understanding your newfound position. Are you with me? Okay, I'm hammering it home. Now, Paul's unfortunate condition was transformed into a tool for the master's use. Now, now he knew the Philippians were really concerned about him. They loved him. They cared for him. But look, he's, he's wanting to let them off the hook here about being worried about him. He says this, I want, verse 12, I want you to know, brethren, that the things which happened to me have actually turned out for the furtherance of the gospel. In other words, because Paul did not let his condition affect his position, but he, he realized, hey, hey, to the saints in Christ, uh, those of us who are fixed in Christ, that's who I'm talking to today. And I want you to know, my condition has actually, God turned it around for something, for his glory and his honor. He goes on to say, so that it has become evident to the whole palace guard and to all the rest that my chains are in Christ. Where is his chains? Oh my goodness. Could it be that God was in charge of his life the whole time? That God uses our negative condition to highlight, yeah, to bless others and to highlight, hey, uh, that has nothing to do with my position. Amen. You think about the first century church, uh, pardon me, about the church in Philippi. They had, ne- they had bad conditions. We outlined them last week. 
But listen, the Philippian church's position would ultimately impact their condition because it says Paul gave them that promise in verse uh, chapter 1, verse 3 through 5. He said, I'm praying for you. And verse 6, what does he say? Being confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. You know what Paul's promising them? Hey, if you'll just stay in Christ, uh, hey, that your conditions, they're only temporary. And I promise you, if you'll stay positioned, you'll stay seated with me and, and with Christ in heavenly places, guess what? God's going to finish what he started in you. Amen. And your position will affect your condition. Amen. You'll never affect your con- your. <laughs> I'm, I'm getting ahead of myself. You'll never affect your condition or ch- be able to change your condition without getting established in your real position. That's in Christ. Amen. Look at your neighbor. Say, "I'm I'm in Christ." Now, principle number two, and we'll tarry here. Our temporal condition should. Never, I should say, not affect our eternal position. We cannot allow our temporary circumstances to affect us with our eternal position with Christ. And Paul, that was, that's Paul. He just didn't let his, neg- his negatives, what we would call game changers or game enders, he didn't, he never, he looked at them completely different than you and I would look at them. Well, I'm in prison now. I guess I'll just wait till I get out. God, he's forgotten me, whatever. Not Paul the Apostle. He never looked at his temporary conditions in a way that would affect him, in his, at least in his mindset, about his eternal position with Christ. And when you and I can gain that understanding on some level, we will discover that we can always, regardless of the circumstances, Rejoice in the Lord because we're still fixed in Him. Our joy doesn't come from our circumstances. Our joy comes from our fixed position. Amen? And so, our temporary, temporary condition should not affect our eternal position now. And we learned last week that, hey, Paul's conditions were never... A, Favorable. He, it seemed like he was always jumping out of the frying pan into the fire. It just seemed like it'd get, you know, we, we enumerated all the trauma and trouble of his life, but it didn't affect his position. Now, I'm going to validate that for you in Philippians 1 by giving you four areas where it did not negatively affect his life. Number one, his temporary condition of being in prison and being beaten and persecuted and traumatized and left and, and mocked and scorned, it didn't affect the impact of his prayer life it did not affect I'll say it this way his influential prayer life most people's prayer life is focused where me myself and I right let me tell you something just a little secret side note it's not in your notes when you get fixed in Christ you become unimportant because it's all about him and others that have yet to know him. And his temporary condition of being in prison did not affect his prayer life. And you see that in verse 3 through verse 11. And it just, it just, it, hey, it, it, it befuddles my mind that he can write this from where he's at in his 
temporary conditions. I thank my God upon every remembrance of you. Always in every prayer of mine making requests for you all with joy. Man, he's in prison. He's going, thank God for the Philippians. They're such a blessing to me. How many of you, most of us, be going, God, get me out of here. I'm a man of God. I got to name something and claim something. I got to be a better charismatic. Paul, not, Paul wouldn't have made it in today's Christian culture. Because our Christian culture today thinks it's all about us. It's not about us. How I many of you know, God didn't seem to mind that Paul was in jail. Didn't seem to bother him a bit, did it? In fact, Jesus allowed that so he could get greater glory in his life. We'll see that. Hey, but catch this. His prayer life didn't change. He said, I'm praying for you with all joy for your fellowship in the gospel. And he goes down, oh God, gosh, let's see, 8 and 9, and verse 9. And this I pray that your love may abound still more and more in knowledge and all discernment. I'd be praying, God, give them somebody who knows how to pick a lock at the jailhouse. Give them, Lord, give them, raise them up and to come Break me out of this house, you know, that their love might still bound more and more in all knowledge and all discernment, that they may approve the things that are excellent, they may be sincere without offense till the day of Jesus Christ, being filled with the fruits of righteousness, which are by Jesus Christ, to the glory and praise of God. Can you see what I'm seeing here? His temporary conditions didn't affect the power and impact of his prayer life. And hey, and notice the tenor of his prayer life. Number one, it was seasoned with thanksgiving and praise. This little prayer right here, I thank God upon every remembrance of you. Verse 11, hey, and pray that you be filled with the fruits of righteousness, which are by Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. His prayer is seasoned and saturated, if you will, with thanksgiving and praise. And, and oh, by the way, he teaches, we'll look at it later, but Philippians 4, he teaches us and them to do the same. Philippians 4, 6, be anxious for nothing. In other words, don't let your circumstances cause you to worry. How many of you know he had, he had some pretty good credentials here to write this? Be anxious for nothing. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. He taught us to do the same. Did you know most people are prayer warriors instead of, instead of prayer warriors? There's only one letter difference, but it's a world of difference when it comes to impact. Don't worry about anything, the Living Bible says, but pray about everything. It was seasoned with thanksgiving and praise. His prayers were seasoned with selflessness. Verse 4, I'm praying for you. His prayers were seasoned with prayers for good success in their lives. Man, I already read it, verse 8, 9, or 9, 10, and 11 of chapter 1. What's he praying? For good success in their life. It's his prayer life is, is hitting on all eight cylinders. What do, hey, just what do most people do when the circumstances go sour? What does our prayer life do? It, it, it starts being polluted with the wrong motives, negative motives and mindsets, fear and intimidation. We become prayer warriors instead of prayer warriors. 
Are you with me? So, what's this principle? Our temporal condition should not affect our eternal position. It didn't affect his prayer life. His temporary conditions, which he called, as we looked at a few last week, as he called them momentary light afflictions. Been beaten five times. Forty lashes saved one. He called it momentary light afflictions. Left for dead. Didn't affect his prayer life. His prayer life stayed right on, praying for others, praying for God's blessing in their life. Number two, it didn't impact or affect negatively his ministry influence. I think we got ahead. Did I skip a... Ooh, we may have a slide missing. Hang on. It didn't affect the impact of his ministry influence. Look, look in the... Uh, verse 12 through 18. I've already read it. Hey, I'm actually doing more benefit and more good here in jail. And verse 14, catch this. And most of the brethren in the Lord have become more confident by my chains, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Now, catch this. Did you hear what, what he just said? My temporary condi- conditions are actually helping others be more confident in their walk with God. Let's put it in your court for a moment. How do, how do you handle the adversities, the adversities of life, and how does that affect others around you? Are you dragging them down with the ship? Or are they going, oh my gosh, I can't believe they have such an attitude when they're going through hell on earth and they still have a faith and a confidence in God. It causes other... Hey, that might be some of the reasons we're going through some things. God wants to prove himself in the middle of the adversities of life. That's what faith's all about in the first place. Amen? And his ministry influence just continued. In fact... If you go back to Acts 16, uh, and I'll just mention it here, but you can go back and look. It's where prison ministry was born. But it wasn't ministry coming into the prison. It was ministry from within the prison. Paul and Silas were in jail. Where were they? Philippi. They'd been thrown in jail. I don't have time to tell you the reasons, but they were there. And you know what they were doing in prison? Singing and praising hymns to God. Singing hymns to God. Praying and singing hymns. Now, I just picked a hymn I think they were singing. I think it was the doxology, but I don't know for sure. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Can you hear it through the prison? Man, in those days, it probably had echo capacity. Praise Him. Silas, Silas probably was the harmony. I don't know. Praise Him, all creatures here below. And the Bible says that there was a shaking and all the bars or the gates came open and the jailer was so fearful, not only for the circumstance, but for his life because of all these prisoners uh, ran free. He, he would lose his life. And he came to Paul and Paul said, it's okay, we're still here. <laughs> Why are we still here? Because we have ministry. And he led the jailer to Jesus. And his jailer and all his house were saved. And that's, hey, we don't know. But the jailer was probably a deacon in the church. 
that he's writing to now, when he says, to all the saints of God and the bishops and the deacons. And Lydia, who was the seller of purple, there wasn't anything going on. They had to meet outside of town. There was no synagogue. When he first met them in Philippi, just some just a few ladies praying out on the edge of town. And so his temporary condition didn't affect his prayer life. It didn't affect his ministry influence. He just kept on keeping on. Wherever he was, that was God's, because he's fixed in Christ, whether in jail. Hey, he said, hey, uh, they all know that my chains are in Christ. It didn't affect his servant's heart. I missed a whole slide, didn't I? I'm sorry. I just missed it. It didn't affect his servant's heart. Philippians 1.1, 1, 1, how does he begin this book? Paul and Timothy, what? Bond servants. Everyone say bond servants. In fact, you know what? That, it's just slaves. Now, here's the interesting thing about a New Testament application. You know, the word slave, uh, this word bond servant, the Greek is doulos. It's just someone owned by another. It's just a slave. But the New Testament application, when you call yourself a slave of God, it doesn't describe an unwilling heart. It describes a willing heart of service, uh, uh, describes willing, determined, and devoted service to Christ. Now, the Old Testament picture, now, oh, I love this one. In Exodus 21, verse 5 and 6, I'll just give you the highlights. Exodus 21, verse 5 and 6, uh, it talks about a slave who loves his master. Now, that's an interesting thing, but it's a great picture. Uh, in other words, slave, this, if a slave, uh, um, loved his master and never wanted to leave his master and he came to his master and said I love you I love this whole thing I don't want to leave I don't want to uh, buy my way out of this slavery uh, he, he could yield himself as a willing slave and the Bible says they would take this slave and they would pierce his ear and mark him forever as a slave forever and ever amen And when Paul said, I'm a bond slave of God, that's the picture he was drawing. And you know what? It kind of fits with, with fixed. I'm marked now. I'm in Christ. And I'm a bondser, I'm a willing bond servant. In a sense, he has marked me forever as his slave and servant. And I do so willingly. That's who I am. It didn't affect his servant's heart. In fact, we see it in verse 19. Uh, when he's talking about whether he would to live as Christ, or really on down to verse 22 and 23, he, he's, he wants to go home to heaven, and I can understand why. How many of you know you've been beaten five times and, and left for dead and shipwrecked and snake bit and battered, bruised, and scarred for me to live as Christ, but to die as what? Gain. But he said, I'd rather go be with Christ. But he said, I'm hard-pressed between the two because I know if I go to heaven, man, everything's, uh, hey, no more pain, no more sorrow. Yeah, he said, I'd have a desire to be, depart with and be with Christ, which would be far better. Everyone say, far better. Now, you need to understand that. Hey, whatever level of success and peace and joy you can rack up here. And hey, I'm all for it. I'm not out to be, hey, 
I, I would love to be blessed on planet Earth. In fact, I'm a blessed man. I, I have some peace and joy on planet Earth. But whatever you can rack up on planet Earth, being in heaven is far better. It's way beyond our capacity to understand. And Paul said that. But he said, hey, but to be with you is more needful. And he served them. And he said, that's what's best for you. It's not about me. Because I'm a bond slave. I've been marked. And so whatever I need to do to serve. And finally, here we go. It didn't affect his capacity to encourage others. His negative circumstances, his condition. It didn't affect his capacity to encourage others. And listen carefully to me about the book of Philippians because I'm trusting you're reading it all, all the way through over and over again in the next few weeks. It's chock full of encouragement. Chock full. Everybody say chock full. Now, I found six in chapter one. Six encouragements from just chapter one. There's, and there's more. But they didn't all start with the letter C. So I found six. So here they are. The encouragement of continuance. We see that in verse 5 when he says, uh, or in verse 6, being confident of this very... Well, let me back up verse 4. Always in every prayer of mine, making requests for you with all joy for your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now. Now, what is he saying? I see you're continuing. You haven't backed up. You haven't quit. And I'm confident that, hey, until Jesus comes again, it's going to keep happening in your life. He encourages them to continue in the things of God. Look in verse 25. And being confident of this, I know that I shall remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy of faith. He's, hey, it's the encouragement of keeping on, keeping on. Now, that's kind of my MO in life. I just kind of, you know... I'm not real mercy motivated. If you fall down, I'll say, oh, man, I'm sorry. Man, I, man, I bet that hurt. Get up. Come on, get up. Don't lay there very long. That's just me. Now, my wife will wash your feet and, you know, tend, make you a meal, and that's all good. That's why we work pretty good together because she's making the meal. And I'm saying, no, you got to get up, get over this. We gotta, come on, we got to get back in the race. Amen. And it's the encouragement to continue. Number two, the encouragement of confidence. He, he's, he's building them up. He said, I'm confident of this very thing. I'm and he's showing his confidence in God in their behalf that he has begun a good work in you. We'll complete it till the day of Jesus Christ. Verse 14, he said, and most of the brethren in the Lord have become more confident by my chains, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. He's just encouraging them to stay confident in God and not let the circumstances of life kill, rob them of their confidence. Hebrews says, you have need of endurance. So that after you've done the will of God, you can receive the prize. And that's what he's talking about. Just keeping on, staying confident, enduring the process. And then he gives them the encouragement of completion. Because he's wanting them to understand that they're in the middle of a process. Look at your neighbor and say, we're in the middle of a process. Tell them, you're in the middle of a process. And let me just say, let me, hey, let me tell you. It won't be finished until Jesus, till we see him face to face. 
becoming like him and know him as we're known. But hey, he encourages them with this mindset of completion. And for the Philippian believers, verse 6, I've read it over and over. He, he, he encouraged them with the, com- the completion uh, in the Philippian believers. He says, hey, I'm confident that the work that he started in you, he will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. Just be encouraged by that fact. God's not going to leave you hanging. He'll complete what he started. Everybody say, he'll complete what he started. Amen. Now, we can postpone his work in our life by rejecting and resisting. And we can undermine the plan of God. But, hey, God, he, has a, he has the mindset of finishing and completing what he started. And Paul shared that about his own life. He said, look in verse 19 uh, and 20. He said this, I know that it will turn out for my deliverance through your prayer and the supply of the Spirit of Christ according to my earnest expectation and hope. Now, now that's, this is where I wanted to comment early. Where is Paul? And here his... And, and if we were there, what would be our earnest expectation and hope? To get out. Not Paul. My earnest expectation and hope, and, and by the way, that's some pretty strong words. My earnest expectation and hope. Hope is a confident expectation of good for my future. My earnest expectation and hope is that in nothing I shall be ashamed, but with all boldness as always, so now also Christ will be magnified in my body, whether by life or by death. I just want Jesus to be glorified. (laughs) In other words, I want to finish my race well, and I'm going to finish... This thing, and, and hey, if we went to Second Timothy, he's, he finished well. He told Timothy, I finished my race, I've kept the faith. I fought the fight, I've kept the faith. Finally, there's laid up for me a crown of rejoicing, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give to me, but also to everybody who loves his appearing. He said, I'm going to finish well. And then... He talks about that day of completion in Christ when we'll all stand before him in verse 6. Look at this in the last part of verse 6. Count of this very thing that he's begun a good work and you will complete it until the day of what? Jesus Christ. You know what that's a reference to? The return of Jesus Christ to planet earth. You call it the rapture, whatever you want to call it. But there will come a day when we'll stand before him and we'll know him as we're known. And for those who know Christ, we stand before him and at the, uh, uh, not to be judged, but to be rewarded for what we've done on planet earth. Did you know everything you do on planet earth has an eternal impact? And so he tells them, he encourages them, hey, one day it'll all be over and we'll be like him. The process will be complete. Amen. And then he gives them the encouragement of a caring concern. Man, he loves these folks. Look at verse 8. For God is my witness, how I greatly long for you with all, for you all with the affection of Jesus Christ. This I pray that your love may abound. He loves these people. He, he cares for them and he's concerned for them. How many of you know that's encouraging when you know somebody cares? In fact, what's the old saying? People don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. 
And see, Paul didn't let his condition affect his encouragement for those that he cared for. That's way beyond most of us. That's way beyond me. Because when I've got some bad condition, I'm ready for somebody to care about me. He didn't affect his capacity to encourage others. We see his encouragement to them of not only caring concern, but of commitment. Look at verse 23 through 26 one more time. How many of you know he's committed? It's good to know, especially when things are not well, when when circumstances are amiss, that there's somebody there with you committed to the end, right? And Paul said, hey, let me just throw my, let me throw Pastor Sam's paraphrase out in commentary. Philippians, it hadn't all been great, but God's going to get the glory in the middle of all of it. In fact, he's going to turn it around for his good. He's turning it around for his good. Whether I'm in jail, in fact, we'll read on in Philippians, I've learned in whatever state I am to be content. But let me tell you, it doesn't matter where we are or where you are, the circumstances of your life, I'm committed to your well-being. He said, I'm concerned about you for your progress and your joy of faith. That your rejoicing for me may be more abundant in Jesus Christ by my coming to you again. Then finally, he encouraged them with the encouragement of community. The family. Amen. What's he pray for them? The first thing he prays in verse 9, that your love may abound still more and more. How many of you know they they love, but he said, I want it to abound. That word abound is kind of like mega growth. I just want your love to just explode. I want this community, this heart of family to grow in you. Verse 19, he says this. uh, He said, I know that it will turn out for my deliverance through your prayer and supply of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. What's he talking about? Community, family, brotherhood. And that theme's all throughout this book. Verse 27, hey, strive together for the faith of the gospel. Community. Now, let me close with that thought. Church is so much more than what we might think it's a family. How many of you know some people who don't understand the power of community in the local church? Some people, cruisematics, you know any cruisematics? They cruise here, cruise there. They let people wine them and dine them and then they move on. Listen, it's family. It's community. And so, here's what I've learned about trouble. Here's what baffles me. What do people do who aren't fixed in Christ and not fixed in the local church? 
when trouble hits the fan. Because when trouble hits the fan in the local church, we come together. When your house burns down, that's, hey. Now, I want to encourage you in the greater context of this message. I began to meditate this week on your position and began to apprehend the revelation of who you are in Christ. Now, before I was in Christ, Ephesians 2, I was a rascal. You were a rascal. But because of His great mercy and love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, He made us alive together in Christ. In Him I live and move and have my being. I'm eternally fixed in the family of God. And, in, and, and so everything else is just temporary. Because I have an eternal understanding of who I am and where I'm headed. Amen. Whew. Well, I'm done. I'm sorry I missed a slide there, Ike. I got all miscombobulated. Hallelujah. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you today for Philippians, for the epistle of joy, and for our position in Christ. Lord, today let that truth resound within our spirits of who we are in Christ. And Lord, never let our Lord, we just commit to never let our condition affect our position. But we take a our posture and our stand and our position in Christ. And we know that ultimately it will change and impact our condition for your glory and your honor. In Jesus' name. And everybody said, Amen. I think I've given you something that can eternally change your whole life. I'm, hey, I'm still, I'm still chewing on it after many, many, many years. Because sometimes when I get my eyes off of who I am in Christ and start getting them on my circumstances, it just immediately. How many of you know that's true? But more when you get yourself fixed, I'm fixed, amen. It'll change your whole life. God bless you. I love you so much. You are dismissed. Amen. Amen.